Well, I asked, I think, uh, is Timmy still in here? Did Timmy run off? Timmy Ramirez? Oh, okay. Uh, so he, Timmy's the only one I didn't talk to, but I need Timmy in here. And uh, Robin's going to come up here and Kyle. Uh, and I asked Josie to come up here uh, with Timmy. So, well, Timmy's not here. Maybe we will have to use Benny. So uh, it's the same. Kyle? Is he here or not here, Timmy? I know he's here, but I mean, I just saw him playing the guitar. So we don't need him. We can use Benny because uh, I didn't t- talk to Timmy. Uh, Kyle, if you could stand next to your mom, please. Not Josie. Oh, I know. Yeah, you are like a second mom and you guys look a lot alike. OK, if you guys could face the congregation, that would be good, too. Oh, Benny. I'm sorry, Benny. Hey, this is good preparation for you for Operation Barnabas. So so I thought we would do an illustration and you're going to think, well, this is really silly, but just bear with me because it's going to fit in with the message. And I thought this might help make the message come alive a little bit. I talked to the moms. The boys have no idea what we're doing. But trust me, this is going to be embarrassing. Just trust me. Um, but, you know, First Thessalonians chapter two is what we're going to. You missed out, Timmy. It's your lucky day. You know, I hate that word, but uh, it's your day of providence. Uh, you get to just relax and watch your brother be ridiculed. So uh, no different than any other day. Right. OK. Um, but First Thessalonians two, we're going to see in First Thessalonians. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, I know I didn't talk to Timmy, but brotherly love, you can punch him later after you find out what we're doing here. So, uh, yeah, I talked to your mom. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm carrying on this conversation. You know, in First Thessalonians one, we saw Paul, the evangelist. And in First Thessalonians chapter two today, we're going to see Paul, the pastor. First uh, Thessalonians one was what every church should be. And today in chapter two, we're going to see what every church goer should be, uh, but especially what every person who ministers in a church should be, because Paul uh, uses some interesting words. Uh, he talks about uh, how he acted as a mother to the believers there, how he acted as a father, how he nourished them and tenderly cared for them. Uh, so I thought it would be great to have an example of a couple mothers tenderly nourishing their uh, boys, uh, because this will this will work out well uh, for later in the sermon. But uh, first, you could pick out a a bib. Now, now the one I like is just too tiny. It says "Thank heaven for little boys." But would anyone like to wear that? Yeah, I, I don't know. Okay, all right. You've grown a lot so since the nursery days. Uh, we have a little bunny, and then uh, I think this fits Tim. This would go well with Timmy. There's a little uh, kitty in the bathtub. <laughs> you can use that one. So, we'll just hold it there. You can just let let it rest there. Uh, Josie, you're going to need this spoon. And and Robin. Wow. Wow. Just let it rest there because you're going to need it. Now, Kyle, would you like with my left hand or my right hand? Which would you like to have? No. Left hand. My right hand. You get some bananas. And Timmy, you get some lovely mixed vegetables. So. If. uh, So. If you ladies could just open that baby food and maybe feed your babies a couple bites uh, and just nourish them. Yeah. Open up. Here comes the here comes the plane. Open up the little hangar. Here comes the train. Here comes the train. Just one bite. Just take one bite. Just one bite. Come on, Timmy. Open up. Here comes the choo choo. Here comes the choo choo. Come on, Timmy. Come on. Be a good boy. Be a good boy. Come on. Come on. That's good, Rob. You can take that with you. You're good. You guys can sit down. Kyle and uh, Robin. Oh, yummy. All right. That's good. Thanks, you guys. You can take the food with you and eat it later. 
and the bib goes in the nursery. You can give it to Lisa. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's kind of a good catch, Mrs. Quintana. Wow. Wow. Usually the English are more into football, not football. So if you haven't met Mrs. Quintana and her husband, uh, he's at work today. But she teaches here at the school, but they've been worshiping with us. But good catch. I'm impressed. Okay. Now, was that kind of silly seeing grown young men being spoon fed baby food by their mothers? Right. Very silly. Right. That's not the way those young men are supposed to be eating. Right. They're supposed to have what kind of food? Not baby food, but solid food, meat. We could have used a milk bottle that had crossed my mind. You probably would have enjoyed that. Did you really eat those vegetables? Did you taste them? How was it? Okay. Yeah. How many of you remember feeding your little ones? And I would always volunteer for the dessert, not the, not the green beans. Or how many of you mothers ever bought squash? Why? Why would you buy a baby squash? Yeah. What is that? If you're gonna if you're gonna feed the baby plums or applesauce, sign me up. Or the chocolate pudding. That was good. One bite for you, two bites for me. You know. All right. Goes. But those vegetables in the meat. What, what is that turkey and that chicken? That, But, you know, spiritually speaking, the Bible talks about how inappropriate and how even silly it is, right? For those that have been Christians for quite a while to still be trying to nourish themselves on what Paul calls baby food. Sometimes he calls it milk. Uh, he says that the mature have their appetites trained so that they can eat solid food. Uh, so he's talking about growing Uh, He's talking about advancing in our relationship with the Lord. And just as silly as that looked, it's just as silly and inappropriate for someone who's been a believer for many, many years to still be uh, trying to eat off of very basic Christian things. So if we go to First Thessalonians chapter uh, two, we're going to see in chapter one, we see the church was planted in chapter Two, I guess we could say there Paul was trying to uh, bring up baby or a nurse. Remember, the Thessalonians, they were new Christians. They were young Christians. Uh, they were just at the beginning of their walk with the Lord. Uh, and so for Paul, uh, there are several things going on in this chapter. Chapter two, uh, Paul, there, there were a lot of false teachers going around uh, in that area of the world during this time. So and a lot of them were trying to convince the Thessalonians that this Paul guy uh, was just after their money. Uh, He just wanted to control their lives. He he didn't really care about them. It was really just all about him uh, on a greedy power trip. And this chapter, uh, he's he tells them he calls God as their as his witness. And he calls uh, the Thessalonian Christians as his witness to show them, hey, that's not true. Uh, I want to defend my apostleship. I want to prove to you uh, what kind of church worker I really am. Uh, And these uh, qualities are especially for those who work in ministry. Uh, If you're here at the church and you're involved in any kind of uh, activity that's involved with other people's lives where you're teaching, uh, you're working in the nursery, perhaps you're working in a commission, uh, you're doing outreach, uh, you're working side by side with other believers or or whatever. uh, This chapter two is going to have a lot of uh, things or characteristics that we see in Paul and Silas and Timothy that we want to see in ourselves. So. Uh, Chapter one was Paul, the evangelist. Chapter two is Paul, the pastor. Uh, Another way to just synthesize this chapter with one word would be the word follow up, the word follow up, Uh, because Paul was there in Thessalonica, planted the church, did a little bit of teaching. And then remember, he was run out of town and ended up down in Athens. Uh, So he sends Timothy back to follow up and to check on these new believers Uh, But keep that in the back of your head or make a note at the beginning of Thessalonians in your Bible or something that these are new Christians. Uh, These are people who are new in the faith. And so Paul gives us three pictures of his ministry here, Uh, three pictures of his ministry that we can see. Uh, And these should also be things that we would ascribe to in our own life. 
And we've read these verses earlier during our scripture reading time. So first of all, we see that Paul is a faithful steward. Paul is a faithful steward. In verse four, he says what? Uh, That he was entrusted by God with the gospel. He was entrusted with the gospel. Uh, And you just see a blank line there. Uh, probably way too small on your outlines for you to write everything in there. But uh, what is a steward? A steward is someone who is entrusted with something that belongs to someone else. And by the way, as Christians, we are all stewards of the things of God. We are all managing, using resources that belong to God because God owns everything. And everything is to be used for his glory. A steward owns nothing of his own, but possesses and uses everything that belongs to his master. We see how Joseph was a steward in Potiphar's house. Remember that he was entrusted with everything there. Uh, His master uh, trusted him uh, to use all of those resources. So Paul says he was entrusted with the gospel to use the gospel on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ and on the behalf of God. You know, and we see a lesson about stewardship in Matthew 25. If you want to turn over there, we're not going to read this passage, uh, but Matthew 25 uh, talks about uh, stewardship. I want to stay right there then. But Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. I think I've listed that on your outline. But if you could go over there to Matthew 25 with me. Uh, And like I said, we're not going to read it, but I just want to summarize what's happening there. Many of you probably already remember this story. The parable. uh, What is a parable? A parable is a story uh, with symbols to emphasize some spiritual meaning. So remember this parable uh, of the talents, verses 14 through 30, uh, that there was uh, an owner uh, or it says uh, there was a man who went on a journey and he owned some slaves uh, and he gave one of the slaves 10 talents, one of them five and one of them two. And he said, this is your this belongs to me, but you take care of this, uh, put it to good use. And when I return We'll find out how well you did with what I gave you. Uh, And first of all, it's important to remember the parable of the talents. It's not talents. When you hear talent as an English speaking person, what do we think of skills and abilities? That's not what a talent here. A talent here in the scripture is a weight of measure. You would have a talent of gold or a talent of silver or a talent of copper. Of course, the gold would be most valuable and silver and so on and so forth. Uh, It was something that would weigh or measure. So he was asking them to invest what he had given them. And then when he came back, the man with 10 talents, did he do a good job or a bad job? He did a good job. The man with five talents, did he do a good job or a bad job? Now, what about the one who had received two talents? Uh, Did he do a good job or a bad job? He did well. He did good because I should have told you ten five two. And then in verse twenty four, there was a man who had received one talent. Uh, and how did he do with that one talent? Very bad. He said he was afraid. Uh, he was afraid he was going to get in trouble, so he just hid what he had. So really, what is this parable about? And then he was cast out into utter darkness. Uh, verse thirty says, "Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping." In gnashing of teeth. So this parable of the talents and it relates to what we're talking about in Thessalonians. The parable of the talents is about the tragedy of wasted opportunity. The tragedy of wasted opportunity and of course wasted opportunity for Christ. Wasted opportunity of what we could do for Christ. Of course the man going on the journey represents Christ. The slaves represent those believers and those believers are given different levels of responsibility. Ten, five, two and one talent. Notice that not everybody was given the same responsibility, but everyone was expected to be fruitful with what he had been given. Sometimes we think. I don't really have 
enough to give anything to the Lord. Or we compare ourselves to other believers and we put them maybe up on a mountaintop, kind of like what you guys do to me. You know, you put me way up there, right? Yeah. Of course, I'm being sarcastic. But that's not what the Lord requires of us. The Lord requires that we be faithful with what he has given us. He's not talking about, yes, he's talking about money. Yes, he's talking about material possessions. But he's also talking about the energy that we have. The energy of a youth versus the energy of a senior citizen. Are they same or different? Right. And does God expect both to act the same? No. God expects each to be as fruitful as he or she can with the energy that they have. He's also talking about mental capacity. He's talking about intellectual ability. He's talking about any resource that God has given us as human creatures. And do we use those resources for the cause of Christ? Are we fruitful with what we do have? We shouldn't be sitting around and bemoaning all that we don't have and all that we can't do and everything that we are not. We should be busy going about figuring out how to use to the fullest extent what I do have. Because he is looking for fruitfulness and faithfulness. He's not looking for quantity as much as he is looking for quality. Now, that one slave turns out to not really be a believer. Uh, He's the fruitless person. And on Judgment Day, he's unmasked by Christ as a hypocrite. Notice that the other slaves that were given talents, they didn't know the true character of this slave that turned out not to be a true believer. And how do we know he wasn't really part of the kingdom of God? Because he didn't really know his master, did he? He said, well, I knew you to be a hard man and I was afraid. Well, that proves that he didn't really know the master. And by the way, that doesn't even make any sense. If, uh, if he knew the master was a hard man, then you'd think he'd work extra hard to invest that money because he was afraid. It just demonstrated that he didn't know. Now, in verse 29 in Matthew 25, it's interesting. It says more will be given you know, to the one who was given much more will be given. You know what's interesting about that? He's saying to those of us who have accepted Christ as Savior, we have eternal life for being fruitful, that we have eternal life plus even more when we get to heaven than we could ever imagine. That's what he means when he says more shall be given to those who are faithful, to those who are fruitful, to those who are eager to serve Christ and showing fruit in their lives. We have eternal life, but when we step into glory and his presence, we will have much more than we could ever imagine in those eternal blessings and that inheritance. Verse 30. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't like verses like that, do we? Those are perhaps some of the most frightening, harshest words we see in Scripture. But that's talking about uh, the inconsolable grief and the unending torment. Uh, For the unbeliever uh, in hell when the Lord returns and brings judgment. It's interesting what uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15, right? He says, make, uh, be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And when he says make the most of your time, that's the word for redeem. Some of your Bibles in Ephesians 5.15 may say redeeming the time. And that's a picture of, of being a wise user of the limited amount of time that God has given us because time is a resource. Time is one of those things that we are to be stewards of. We are only given so much time each day. We are only given so much time in each life. And by the way, nobody but God knows when the hourglass runs out of time on a life. He says, redeem your time, use your time wisely because it's ticking away. Kind of reminds me of when we take our kids. We don't take our kids when we take our kids to like Chuck E. Cheese or uh, Nickel Nickel. Is that even still open? Nickel Nickel. Somebody was looking for Nickel Nickel not too long ago. They couldn't find it or something. I don't know. I think it was Elizabeth or something. Do they still give the tokens to do the games and things like that? Kids who don't use those tokens wisely, 
They just burn up all those. Or do you ever get sucked into that trap like at Frantones and other places with the claw? Oh, get your favorite stuffed animal, you know, before you know it, you put $30, $30 in there and you're still not getting anything. Just be like Tyler. Just climb up inside of it and take what you want, right? Yeah. We were at Frantones in Norwalk once and we couldn't, they couldn't find Tyler and they look, he's inside the, uh, inside the claw game, wasn't he? He had climbed up in there. You guys spent like $80 trying to get him out of there. That's a thing. Remember that? You guys were panicked. Where is he? Where is he? And he's in there. It's like. Wisely using resources. Think of the time you have each day as something you're supposed to be managing for God. Oh, that makes it a little more serious, doesn't it? Where we spend our time. I remember our kids went to a uh, Christian concert in South Bend with the youth group uh, way back when. And we gave Jay money for the concert and money for lunch. <laughs> for some reason, he didn't manage his money well. And by the way, now he's ex- he, he manages his money extremely well now. But as a teenager, I think he was probably 14. So at the concert, he blew most all of his money on drinks and I don't know what else. So it was a long ride home and they had to stop for lunch and he had two dollars because he had spent almost all the money we'd given him on other things. Uh, And this is typical Jay too. Uh, others offered to loan him money. He wouldn't take a dime. So he had a two dollar lunch. I think he had a side salad and a water or something. So, you know, when you don't manage your resources well, you end up having side salad and water uh, for lunch. So Paul was a faithful steward. He was a faithful steward of his ministry. We are called to think of life, to think of all of our resources. If we're involved in ministry of any type, we are to think of those things as the fact that we are just stewards. And we will give an account to the Lord for how we have managed all that he has given us when we see him someday. In Paul's stewardship, he mentions Uh, It in different ways. He talks about the manner of his ministry. He talks about the message of his ministry, the motive of his ministry uh, and the method of his ministry in these verses of Second Thessalonians. In regard to the manner of his ministry, he and Silas, remember, they'd been humiliated in Philippi, but they still came down to Thessalonica and they preached. You know, most of us, if we had gone someplace and started sharing the gospel And people began to threaten us physically or they actually got a hold of us and began to pummel us. We would say, that's it. This isn't the ministry for me. Uh, I'm going to take a quick vacation and I'll get back with you, Lord, on what we're going to do next. But what did they do? They were humiliated. They were run out of town. They were physically assaulted. So they got up and they went to the next town. The manner of their ministry was courage. Paul was no quitter for God when things got difficult. I think sometimes, especially in America, because we're a luxurious nation, we're a comfortable nation, we're a materialistic nation. We love to be Christians as long as it's easy. Unlike many of our brothers and sisters around the world, we don't know what it's like to suffer for our faith in Christ. And I often wonder, would I pass the test if things got ugly? I'm still convinced, maybe in my lifetime, I'm not sure, but definitely and maybe in my kids and my grandkids, they're going to have to make that decision. Because Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 that things are just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. But Paul was no quitter. He had a holy boldness, it says here. In First Thessalonians 2. And where did that boldness come from? It came from his dedication to God. He boldly proclaimed the good news. Don't let that escape your notice in verse 2. We had the boldness in what? Boldness in our God. Boldness in our God. They were just beaten, assaulted, harassed, run out of town. And yet they still just go to the next town and they still have boldness. Because their dedication, their commitment was to God, not to circumstances, not to people. 
And he says the preaching came with a lot of opposition, he says there. Verse two, gospel of God amid much opposition. That is an athletic term. How appropriate for today, the Super Bowl with much opposition means a contest, a struggle. Very familiar to the people of that time. Athletics were very popular even back in those ancient times. And Paul often used that illustration to talk about spiritual truths. Then he says in the first part of verse 3 that his message uh, in his ministry uh, was uh, for the appeal, he says, we make does not spring from error. It says our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or deceit. He uses three terms to describe their ministry. Uh, in verses 3, the first part, the middle part, and then the last part, talking about what he preached was not a mistake. It was, did not have any errors. Six times in this letter, he mentions the gospel. And what is the gospel? Let's be clear. It's not difficult. It's not difficult to know what it is. It may be difficult to embrace it is the message of Christ's death and resurrection. And that by Christ's death and resurrection, that is the only way to receive eternal life. Because of man's sin. Look at the second part of verse 3. He talks about the motive for his ministry. That it was not motivated by any impurity. This can refer to either his sexual purity or it can refer to the fact that he had no greed. That was one of the accusations against him. Oh, this Paul guy is just in it for the money. I don't know what it was like back in his day. I guess some ministers may be in it for the money. Uh, we, we see that a lot today, don't we? Uh, a lot of ministries and ministers make millions upon millions. Uh, and Paul says, that is not my motive. In fact, Paul will tell us later that he actually worked a job on the side to help support himself so he wouldn't have to take any of their money. What was his career, his vocation, not career, his vocation? Yeah, tent maker. I like the word vocation because I think career puts kind of a worldly sinful spin on things. Oh, I got to have a career. Well, no, because man sinned in the garden. We all have work. We have a vocation. We have to work. Uh, our career is to be a Christian, I guess we would say. I'm a career Christian. Look at the method of his ministry in the third part of verse three. He says, neither was my ministry by way of deceit, talking about his method. He didn't use deceit or guile or trickery to win converts among them. Now, the word guile or deceit, some of you are going to like this. It literally means to bait a hook. So what's the reference to fishing? He's saying, I'm not like some fisherman that put bait on the hook and dropped it down the water and tried to lure you guys into the faith for my own personal gain. There was no baiting and switching. There was no clever arguing. He's saying salvation is not the result of clever arguments or subtle presentations. That salvation is just the result of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't need marketing gimmicks. We don't need advertising. We don't need to, you know, to have gimmicks and things to lure people in. All we need is the word of God applied by the spirit of God. And that results in salvation. We need to have the word. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul said, I become all things to all men. I don't know about you guys. Little rabbit show. How many of you are hot? It's hot in here. No, is it just me? Evelyn, you don't count. You don't count when we ask, is it hot or cold? You, you, you're going to be you're gonna be free. And neither does Charlene. You guys are always saying it's cold in here. It's cold in here. You need to put on some weight like me, Evelyn. It's comfortable. Okay. If you gain a few pounds like me, not. okay. I don't want you to think that was harsh. We, we know each other, right? Do you love me? Okay. All right. Don't tell Lisa. I love you too. Yeah. All right. I just realized that sounded kind of harsh when it came out. So you count. All right. See, I lost my train of thought. Okay. So we don't use gimmicks and things. Now, Paul said, I become all things to all men so that I might win some. But he wasn't talking about marketing and gimmicks and tricks and things like that. He was talking about just relating to people on their level where they are. 
uh, and that's just fine. But it is interesting. If you look back in chapter one, I just want to point this out because some of you have asked me about this before. Chapter one of First Thessalonians, especially verses five and six, you, it says there in verse five, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he connects the scriptures with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse six, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word, meaning the scriptures or the gospel in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So once again, connecting the word or the scriptures with the spirit. That's very important because the Holy Spirit will never work apart from the word of God. If we want to help people, if we want to see people saved, if we want to evangelize people, if we want to bring people in the kingdom, we must make sure that the scriptures, that the gospel, that the word of God takes the preeminent role in that relationship. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with clothing people. There's nothing wrong with feeding people. In fact, Paul says in Galatians, do good to all people, especially those who belong to the household of faith. But. There are many today that do those mercy ministries while neglecting the gospel. And if they do, then they're sucking all the power right out of their evangelism. Because the power and salvation is the scripture, not the good deed. And many today use their good deeds as a synonym for evangelizing. Well, yeah, I did evangelism. I gave him a sandwich. He was hungry down there. Well, did you share the word with him or the gospel? No. Well, then you didn't evangelize. You did something nice. You did something good, but you didn't evangelize. Give him a sandwich and the word. Remember what Peter said when he came out of uh, the gates in Jerusalem and there was a man there begging and he wanted money. He said, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. What he was saying was, I don't have worldly means to give you something, but I do have the word of God. And that's what you need more than the silver and gold. So Paul's ministry was right on target. Now, secondly, three pictures of Paul's ministry. Boy, do we need to hit the gas. Paul's ministry. He was a faithful steward. Now, in verses seven and eight of First Thessalonians two, he talks about. How they proved to be gentle among them, like a nursing mother who tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you that we were well pleased to give you not only the gospel, but we also gave you our very lives because you had become very dear to us. What are the marks of a gentle, nurturing mother? We saw it this morning, didn't we? Caring for the needs. A mother cares for the needs of her children. A mother loves her children. A mother practices patience with her child or tries, right? A lot of sacrifice, right? Let's just be honest. Being a parent requires sacrifice. If you are by nature, we're all by nature selfish, but if you are by nature extra selfish and you have kids or want to have kids, that's going to be a rough road, folks, <laughs> because being a parent requires a lot of sacrifice. And, of course, a mother who's tenderly nursing, that's talking about nourishment. And Paul says, that's how I was among you spiritually. I wanted to love you. I protected you. I nourished you. I cared about you. I've sacrificed for you. And I was glad to do it. You know, I looked at the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture because they're the ones that keep track of this. For a child born in 2013, how much is it going to cost to raise that child till he's 18? What do you think? I wish it was just 239. $245,340 per child. You guys are bleeding us dry. Just telling you. Amen, someone says. To raise a child today, born in 2013 to the age of 18, U.S. Department of Agriculture says $245,340. Wow, it takes time, doesn't it? It takes money. It takes effort to care for children properly. And by the way, 
every good parent is glad to do it. Amen. Yeah, it's hard. It's sacrifice, but we love. And so we do it. And there's a lot of joy. And we see that in Paul's relationship as well with these people. Notice that Paul did not turn his converts over to babysitters. What Paul's doing here is follow up. He saw these people come to the Lord because of his ministry. Then he wanted to continue to nourish and nurture and protect and to love and to sacrifice just like a mother. What he's really talking about here is discipleship. That's what we would call it today. Not just evangelism, but he wanted to be involved in their discipleship. He wanted to see them come to Christ, but he also wanted to see them nurtured in Christ and to grow in Christ. And he was willing to make whatever sacrifice that it took. He gave his very life. He didn't just give them verses of scripture, pat them on the back and send them on their way. He was deeply involved in their lives, deeply concerned about them. And if we don't nurture the newer Christians, then they'll be on milk for their whole lives. It's interesting uh, that he uses this illustration of a mother. And now in the next section, lastly, he describes his ministry as a concerned father. So he talks about mothering them spiritually and now fathering them spiritually in the faith. Uh, and, you know, what this is uh, I, I would want to challenge you to think about this uh, and make sure you go over those questions on the back of your outline, those questions for thought. So uh, but has there ever been anyone in your Christian life who has spiritually mothered you or spiritually fathered you? I know for me personally, because my dad abandoned us when I was 12. But how many men from my church stepped in and spiritually fathered me for the next six to, uh, you know, 15 years? Uh, and, you know, that's why I'm here today. And how many women in the church that I was in mothered me spiritually to step in? Because my mom, I love her. She's my mom, but she doesn't know the Lord yet. Uh, I think she might be close. What if she listens to this online? Then I'm in trouble. Hi, Mom. Love you. But one of the greatest days of my life, one of the greatest days of many of your lives, are the day that your kids are born. Paul thought of them as his children. He thought of them as a spiritual, as that he was their spiritual father. But look what he says that a father does. There's a few things here. He says... Something about his work, his walk and his words. First of all, he talks about in verse nine how hard he worked. A good father works to support his family. Now, the Christians in Philippi would send him money, but still Paul worked very hard on his own so that no one could accuse him of taking their money. Notice that he uses the words labor. He says he labored Uh, There was labor and there was hardship both night and day. Toil and hardship would be another way to put it. He toiled because he loved them. So a good father works and provides. Secondly, he reminded them of his walk in verse 10. He says, you are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved or walked among you as believers. Now, here's the thing. And this is sometimes tough, but fathers must also live lives that are good examples to their children. Now, look at the words in the passage, verse 10, very closely. That is bold of Paul. Paul says, I call on God to be my witness. I call on all of you to be my witness about what kind of man I am, Paul says. His conscience was so clear before God That he could call God as his witness. Could you do that? As a man or as a woman, as a father, as a mother? Can we do that? Could I do that? But he calls them as a witness. He wants to set a good example for them. He had been exemplary in every way. He says his life was uh, upright, I think, first of all. Or devout, he says. Devout, that means holy. And the word devout or holy there means that he carefully fulfilled the duties that God gave him. To say that someone is devout or pious 
means they take their responsibilities spiritually very seriously. And they set a good example for other people in that. Then he says his life was upright. That's referring to integrity, his character and his behavior. Then he says his life was blameless, meaning nobody would be able to accuse him of anything that would disqualify him for his ministry. Then verses 11 and 12. Paul mentions his words, and these are all in the context of being a father. So a father must not only support the family by working and teaching the family, but by being a good example as well. He must also take time to speak to his family, to talk with his family, to communicate with his family. Now, notice what Paul says. Don't let this escape your notice there in uh, verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, each one of you. That's important. It was personal. He had not only a corporate ministry among them as a church, but he made time for people personally. Each one of you. He not only had a pulpit ministry, but he had a personal ministry as well. It's good practice for any people in ministry, especially pastors, to make sure they're spending time with individuals ministering. It says Paul exhorted the new believers. A father exhorts his children because they get easily discouraged. Now, your Bibles may have the word encouraged there, and that is kind of the meaning. It means to call to one's side, to encourage, to exhort someone means you bring them to you. You bring them to your side to encourage them because they get discouraged. Paul knew these new believers could get easily discouraged. It doesn't mean that he scolded them. To exhort does not mean to scold. It means to encourage them to go on with the Lord. Then it says that Paul encouraged them in most of our Bibles, and that is the word comforted. Now, the word emphasizes activity. Paul wasn't just using his words to make them feel better, but he encouraged them because he wanted them to do better. You know, his Christian encouragement wasn't just sort of some sort of anesthesia that would put them to sleep. But encouragement is a stimulant to encourage someone means to stimulate them to carry on in the Lord and to pursue spiritual things. Now, I don't know why, but then he says he was imploring each one of them. And you probably have a number one in your Bible next to the word imploring. It means to testify. It's talking about his personal testimony. Another thing that Paul did, and I know that parents hate this, or I mean that kids hate this. Kids hate when parents say, well, you know, back when I was your age, you know, or back when I was a kid, you know, and, and we've all been teenagers, you know, when our parents say that in our heads, we're doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, whatever. Back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. I know, Dad. I know, Dad. But when Paul says he was imploring each one, that word means he was testifying to each one. He was sharing with them his own personal experience in his own Christian walk. He was actually giving his testimony of what God had done for him in order to encourage them. It's a very important aspect of a Christian relationship. To use our own experiences to then turn around and comfort others. Now. All that we've said today, why did Paul say it? What was Paul trying to accomplish in their lives? Verse 12 is the answer. He was a faithful steward. He gently mothered them spiritually. He fathered them spiritually with concern. Why? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He wanted them to learn how to walk. Every baby has to learn to walk, right? He wanted them to learn. They're new Christians. He wanted them to learn how to live the Christian life. That's why he cared so much, sacrificed so much, loved so much, nurtured and nourished so much. Now, something very important I don't want you to miss 
Look at verse 12. Worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Usually, I don't like to burden you with Greek words and Hebrew and all that. That's very important for my studies. But here it's important. It's important to see that the word calls is in the present tense. Paul's not saying God called you past tense, period. He's saying God is continually calling you into his kingdom and glory. What is he talking about? When God calls us, that's the great doctrine of justification. We are justified before God because of what Christ did on the cross. But what Paul is saying is that justification is just the beginning. You don't come to Christ for salvation and check out and wait for the kingdom and wait for the glory. So he's mentioning justification and sanctification, which is the doctrine of I keep going, I keep growing. So if you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been called. But if you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, God is still calling. Keep going, keep striving, keep straining, keep laboring, keep growing, keep committing, keep sacrificing. Keep that fire burning. I didn't call you for you to take a seat and wait for the glory train to pull into the station. There's a lot to be done. God continually calls his people. Didn't Paul say as much in Philippians? One thing I do, I do what? I forget what's behind and I press on toward what is ahead to the upward call in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, I haven't yet obtained it. If the apostle Paul says, I'm not there yet, I'm going to keep striving. Then how much more so should I and should you? Because I'm not the apostle Paul. God is calling He's still calling you if you are a believer. And by the way, if you're here today and you, excuse me, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't accepted the gospel, remember the gospel is, I'm a sinner. I am the object of God's wrath because he is holy. It's a problem I cannot solve on my own. Jesus Christ appeared, the perfect sinless lamb of God. He died for me personally, shedding his blood. They put him in a tomb and three days later, that tomb opened and he walked out, conquering death, giving me eternal life. That's the gospel. So if you're here today and you have not accepted that, then you need to do that. You need to be called. You need to be justified. If you're here today and you already know the Lord, remember, God is still calling. He's calling you to keep pursuing him. He's calling you to keep laboring, keep striving, keep growing. Don't give up. Don't get lazy. Don't get apathetic. Don't get distracted by the world. This world is passing away. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's a vapor. Only what is done for the Lord will last forever. I want you to walk or to live your life in a manner that's worthy of the God who continually calls you into his kingdom and his glory. So no wonder this church in Thessalonica prospered in spite of persecution. And they continued to share the gospel with other people for miles around. They had been born right by Paul in chapter one. And number two, they had been they had been nurtured right in by Paul. What a good example for us to follow. I would implore you to take the outline home with you and look at those questions on the back and be open and honest with the Lord. The learning cycle is not done until we apply what the Lord has taught us. Let's stand up together. Think about your stewardship. Are you a faithful manager of all the resources that God has given you? Or are you spending your time, your energy, your efforts, your money on things that don't have eternal value? 
Now think about Paul's spiritual care as a mother and as a father. Are you currently spiritually parenting anyone? And my question would be, if not, why not? Or maybe you're here and you desire to be spiritually parented. And by that we mean in a discipleship relationship. Uh, this is discipleship, but I mean one-on-one or small group. One-on-one or group of three or a smaller group for Bible teaching, for prayer, for encouragement, and then deeper than that for living life together uh, with other believers. There's a great need. Uh, Remember, God is calling. He's calling you to go further. Look for ways to be a spiritual mother or a spiritual father for others. Or if that's something you desire, don't be afraid to go to someone and ask about mentoring, about discipleship, about growing together. We've got a lot of work to do, folks. You know, we're not here to whoop it up and live and enjoy this life, get the most we can. We're here to take the message of the gospel of Christ to the lost, and we're here to disciple and train and encourage each other. That's why we're here. Heavenly Father, thanks for our time together today. I just hope it didn't come off too negative. uh, But uh, my intent is to stimulate us, to implore us, to shake off the doldrums, to quit being riveted by all that is worldly. We need to catch a glimpse of what has eternal value, what is most important. Father, every minute of every day you give us is an account of time. And we will be accountable to you for how we use that time. We have to work. We have to go to school. We have to do other things. But we need to use our time wisely. We spend a lot of our time chasing after things that don't matter. Really things that are worthless, eternally speaking. So, Father, I pray you convict us. Convict us of our stewardship. But then, Father, if we've been a Christian for many years, we need to be spiritually parenting others. We need to be looking for ways that we can be an influence on others, especially those newer in the faith, especially those who are still growing early in the faith. We need to be looking for ways to give and for less ways to take. So help us with all these things, Father, because we want to be pleasing to you. We want to be a church with a reputation like those in Thessalonica. We want to be known like these people were known. Who accepted the word, who were eager for the word, who had deep, meaningful, biblical relationships with each other. We, we want to be like them. So just over the course of the next many months, as we continue to go through these letters, pray that you would convict us, yes, but change us and transform us more and more into the image of Christ. We just praise you and glorify you and thank you for every good thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being here today, folks. Hope you have a super day today.